Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We will be joined shortly by my good friend who's been a subject of numerous conversations on this very podcast, of course. That is Ilya Shapiro. Newly minted at the Manhattan Institute, formerly of Georgetown University Law Center. So very excited for that conversation. Talk about what happened to him at Georgetown, as well as just further recapping this historic Supreme Court term. But until then, I want to turn our attention elsewhere in an entirely different direction, as the case may be. I want to talk a little bit about foreign policy. So President Joe Biden is off this week to the Middle East. He is planning to make stops in Israel, in the West Bank otherwise known as Judea and Samaria. And then he is going to go to Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. And I actually wrote my column this past week on Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and what that says and does. But real quick, I want to touch first on his trip to Israel. So, you know, look, Israel has obviously been a stalwart mainstay ally of the United States for many decades now. And, you know, the listeners of this podcast are well informed. In recent decades, has become more of a partisan football than it probably previously was. You know, Republicans tend to kind of mollycoddle Israel, and they view it as a staunch ally. The, the Democratic progressive base is now not exactly pro-Israel, to put it mildly, when you look at the folks like Ilhan Omar and AOC. But what Joe Biden is doing here, what he is planning to do in this particular trip, is symbolically quite provocative. And unfortunately, it's actually, it's actually happening at the same time that Isaac Herzog, who is the president of Israel. The actual power there resides in the prime minister's office, but the president has kind of figurehead symbolic power. At the same time that Isaac Herzog is actually bestowing upon Joe Biden some ridiculous Medal of Honor award, he's actually really going to be undermining, uh, undermining actually both U.S. law and throwing Israel under the bus in the process. So what's been happening, it's, it's kind of an abstruse story. We've covered it at Newsweek, but it's really kind of escaped the prying eyes of much of the Western mainstream press. What the Biden administration has basically done is they've taken steps to undo President Trump's very, very courageous actions to move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and to absorb kind of the Palestinian outreach unit in that embassy into the broader U.S. embassy unit in Jerusalem. So what they have done exactly is they closed the old Palestinian affairs unit that was operating within the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, and they've replaced it with a new, quote unquote, Office of Palestinian Affairs. Now, that sounds like a lot of legalese and diplomatic language that isn't necessarily relevant. But 
the upshot is that the chain of command here it gets entirely messed up. So in this new Office of Palestinian Affairs, what is actually happening is the U.S. diplomat who is based there is not going to report directly to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, which is how it would work in any other foreign country when there were kind of subsidiary consular officers reporting to an embassy. Here, the chain of command is such that the U.S. representative there will report directly to the Secretary of State back in Washington, D.C. in Foggy Bottom. The unmistakable symbolic action of that is to undermine Israel's sovereignty in Jerusalem, is to kind of extend yet another olive branch to the Palestinians who famously, as we all know, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, as the old saying goes. But furthermore, and we published an op-ed in Newsweek recently, just this past week, actually, by Israel's former U.S. representative of the United Nations, Danny Danone, who basically was decrying Joe Biden's visit to eastern Jerusalem, the fact that he's going to go there, that he's going to talk with a lot of Palestinian Authority representatives there. All of this is intended basically to invert the real meaningful actions that the U.S. took to solidify its relationship with Israel under former President Trump. And it's it's unfortunate from 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 an American perspective, it is very unfortunate because the very tangible results, among other things that we saw as a result of all the myriad actions that the last administration took to solidify that U.S.-Israel bond was it actually had the effect of incentivizing and encouraging other countries like the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco and kind of sort of Sudan and Kosovo to cozy up and establish more formal diplomatic relationships with Israel. That, of course, took the form of the Abraham Accords, which under any other administration, under any other president not named Donald Trump would have been an unmistakable Nobel Peace Prize winning moment, of course, that epic photo op at the White House in September 2020, just two months before the election, of course, with Bibi Netanyahu and the leaders of UAE Bahrain. Just an amazing, amazing day. And that actually is a perfect segue to the Saudi issue that I want to briefly touch on here in our opening remarks as well, because Saudi Arabia, for obvious geographic and religious, traditional, historic regions, is by far the most relevant and most powerful actor in the Sunni Arab world. Obviously, um, Mecca is, is, is the holiest city in Islam. Saudi Arabia is physically a very large country. Nonetheless, during the 2020 campaign, President Biden took really really dramatic steps to decry and otherwise rhetorically ostracize Saudi Arabia. He referred to it as a pariah nation. All this goes back to the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey in 2018. But it's worth noting that he is now going to visit Saudi Arabia. He's going to do so. He's going to visit the young, precocious crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who he had previously called a thug and all these other terrible things. And I think the upshot here is that what it says is that this idealistic foreign policy rhetoric, this idea to kind of further the Obama era effort to realign America's Middle East involvement away from Israel and our traditional Sunni Arab allies towards Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood, all it has met an immovable object known as reality. Because the U.S. obviously has to focus more now on East Asia and the threat of China. That means that we have to slowly kind of retrench a little bit and withdraw from other regions, whether it's Europe or the Middle East. And that necessarily means solidifying other bonds and other allies there. That necessarily means 
relying a little bit on the House of Saud to cozy up to the Emiratis and Israelis and things like that. So good for Joe Biden to a limited extent, and we wish him well on this rapprochement with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But on that note, we want to take a quick commercial break here. We're going to bring on, again, my friend Ilya Shapiro, talk about an entirely different subject. So stay with us. We will be right back. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back. As you mentioned, we are thrilled to be joined this week by a good personal friend of mine. That, of course, is Ilya Shapiro. He is the senior fellow and a director of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute. He is the author of the new Substack, Shapiro's Gavel, and also the author of the book Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, now available in paperback. And while we're at it, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't mention he's also a Newsweek columnist. So, Ilya, you're clearly doing a lot. Thanks for joining us this week. Yeah, trying to get over jet lag at the same time. And we're expecting twins this fall. So when it rains, it pours. Oh, my. Yes. Well, I, I guess when it rains, it falls is a perfect way to open up this conversation. So you have just started at Manhattan Institute, but you've most recently been in the news, of course, for things not exactly related to Manhattan Institute. So... You know, in your own words, we've discussed this on the podcast. I've monologued about it a little bit. But in your own words, why don't you kind of tell us just a little bit about what exactly happened at Georgetown University Law Center over the course of January through eh, May or June or so? Right. Well, I'd, I'd been at, at Cato for, for nearly 15 years, of course, and got an opportunity that I thought would uh, take my career in a different direction, try to have a different kind of impact, new challenge. Uh, to join uh, Randy Barnett at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution to be the executive director there and, and a senior lecturer, teach some classes, uh, and otherwise uh, uh, heighten the, the, the brand of a very good uh, institution. Well, a few days before um, I was uh, set to join Georgetown, I had a controversial tweet criticizing President Biden's restriction of his criteria for picking Supreme Court justices by race and sex. I was so-called investigated for four months as to whether that tweet violated um, harassment, anti-discrimination policies at the university. Ultimately, someone looked at a calendar and realized I wasn't an employee uh, when I tweeted, and therefore those policies didn't even apply to me. Um, I celebrated that technical victory. This was uh, June 2nd. Um, obviously, it was a cynical ploy to you know, wait for the students to get off campus, the semester to end and, and try to quietly reinstate me in that way. But it turned out as I poured over the, the report uh, of the Orwellian named uh, Office of Inclusion, Diversity, Equity and Affirmative Action um, that they were setting me up for a fall. And uh, any time that I said something that offended someone, that kind of a subjective standard, then that would create a hostile educational environment, uh, which would subject me to you know, discipline and, and termination. And that was untenable. Uh, in the four-page resignation letter that I submitted four days later, uh, which was summarized in the op-ed I published in the Wall Street Journal, um, there are 
anytime I, I criticized or lauded some Supreme Court opinion or taught uh, a sensitive constitutional law subject or otherwise was in the media about these sorts of things, affirmative action, abortion, guns, what have you, um, that would uh, have triggered uh, this discipline under the under the kangaroo court uh, star chamber structure they set up that was untenable. So I had to quit uh, and I ended up joining Manhattan Institute, which is a wonderful organization promoting uh, policies of individual responsibility, economic liberty, and, and, and so forth, and um, had to use this opportunity and this platform to shine a light on the rot in academia and the the empowering of illiberal forces by weak and spineless uh, university administrators. And so I was doing that, and and now I'm went on vacation to Sicily, launched my Substack, and now I'm back, uh, tanned, rested, and ready to. <laughs> To re-enter the arena uh, and 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 have an impact on on constitutional law, the discussion over the Supreme Court, and and, and other uh, issues in the public domain. Well, it's a good arena that you're hopping into. So I'm I'm a huge fan of Manhattan Institute. The the listeners of this podcast know that I'm pretty hardline on the law and order issues, pro police things of that nature, and you know folks there like Heather McDonald, Rafa Manuel. When it comes to kind of law and order and policing, there's probably no think tank that I look to more than MI and, of course, its flagship publication, City Journal. And, you know, I do want to get to the Supreme Court term that we both just watched unfold before our eyes in historic fashion, but I, I want to spend just a little more time on Georgetown Law and just kind of the rot in higher ed in general before doing so, because around the same time that you were going through your trials and tribulations, of course, with Dean William Trainer at Georgetown Law, Joshua Katz, a professor of classics at Princeton University, was very much going through his own loaded, loaded dice, you might say. I mean, it was not the, 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 the deck was very much stacked against him. And he ultimately was, of course, then outed from his longtime professor gig at your alma mater, Princeton University. So looking at higher education in general, what what are your main takeaways? I mean, based on what you yeah. what based on what you just experienced, like where do we on the broad right of center libertarians, conservatives, who like all of us, like like what do, where do we go from here as far as trying to fight for sanity in higher education? Yeah, I got to know Josh Katz a little bit through my travail. Um, actually, spoke at Princeton on an event on cancel culture and the illiberal mob. Um, wrote a piece about his uh, circumstance in, in National Review. Um, and he's landed uh, as well at the at the American Enterprise Institute, although probably he would rather, you know, he's a true academic. Unlike me, I'm, you know, I, I like to teach. I like to you know, publish the occasional law review article, but um, I sort of straddled the legal, political, academic worlds. Uh, he is a true academic. And, and although it's great that he's at AEI, another institution that I respect very much and have, have good friends there, uh, I'm sure in his heart of hearts, he would rather still be, you know, a, a high flying classics professor at, at a leading institution. And it's unfortunate. Uh, COVID uh, broke my alma mater. Princeton had actually been one of the league leaders in resisting uh, That's right. the, the yeah. illiberal mob. Uh, they had they were very good on speech. They were very good on kind of the excesses of the Title IX Me Too stuff. Uh, but then, you know, COVID and and uh, and and George Floyd and 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 all of that, I think I think broke it. Uh, and so Josh Katz was picked up in the undertow, kind of a fallout from some muckraking student journalists and uh, under the pretext of anyway, we don't need to go into his uh, his case specifically, but uh, I don't have much hope for academia. I do have uh, a fair bit of hope for the country at large, but academia, you know, it's it's just so rare to find university leaders 
who stand up for due process and free speech. You know, forget whether they're liberal, conservative, libertarian, you know, that doesn't really matter. But the, the essential mission of any university should be the search for truth and uh, to, to follow that wherever it might lead. You know, knowledge for its own sake and in applications, um, it's the, the, the proliferation of, of DEI, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion that subvert uh, intellectual diversity, uh, prevent uh, equal opportunity, and exclude dissenting voices, that has really uh, accentuated the, the previous negative trends of kind of over-bureaucratization and you know, th- things that are, that are different than simply the age-old complaint of uh, academia you know, not you know, being too liberal or something like this. This is not, I, I wanna be clear, Josh, that uh, my experience and, and what we're seeing is not simply you know, the continuation of the decades-old thing since the 60s of the, the liberal takeover of academia. That's, that's not what the problem here. The problem is the illiberal takeover uh, of academia. And uh, even those on the left, you know, liberal Democrats in good standing. Uh, just today, I saw in Barry Weiss's substack, uh, a UCLA anthropology professor quit, uh, not because he himself was being investigated, but because he saw this same rot. So, right. um, you know, I, I don't have much optimism. And, and it's a shame because I don't think it's an unfixable problem. This is not some, you know, first principles, holistic, uh, uh, societal, you know, deep rooted thing. If, if, President's dean's department had simply stood up any time there was a kerfuffle and said, look, we're not going to be in the business of policing speech, of judging what is wrong think and right think. Uh, these things would dissipate. You know, the University of Chicago, our law school alma mater, uh, used to be pretty good at this. They're, they've, they've, they're, they're flagging a little bit, but still, uh, in the grand scheme of things, the principles that were established at the University of Chicago for, for free speech just a few years ago uh, are the gold standard. Uh, but unfortunately, there's just the, 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 the incentive structure to become a dean or, or department head or chair uh, or president uh, attract people that are that are spineless. And it's not that they're, you know, woke or crazy or illiberal themselves, but they're spineless and they and they empower these negative trends. Yeah, I'm really happy the way you phrased it as kind of the mission of the university to ultimately pursue knowledge and truth, because I, I have said that basically verbatim time and time again. I mean, it seems so obvious to me that that is the goal. And that ultimately is the reason, of course, that universities historically have received taxpayer subsidization, taxpayer support. Obviously, their endowments are treated remarkably favorably by the United States tax code. And the argument that that I have made that I've seen some folks like Inez Stepman from the Independent Women's Forum, Arthur Millick from Claremont Institute, that I've seen some of them make and I'm very sympathetic to is, and I, I guess the way that I would phrase it is it's kind of an implied quid pro quo, right? Like the quid is they will pers- help young people mature and pursue truth and knowledge. And then the quo is that they get favorably treated. So, you know, before we transition, last question on this before I'm kind of moving on to the Supreme Court stuff. From your perspective, based on what you've experienced, if higher ed loses the quid, what should the quo be? Like what kind of public policy response do you think would be appropriate given the current state of higher education and the, and the extent really to which the U.S. taxpayers involved in it as far as the tax code, as far as student loans, all that stuff? I haven't fully thought through the public policy implications, but I think there's a parallel to the Supreme Court case. And this could be a segue to our next uh, our next segment uh, on uh, uh, to, to Janice versus uh, AFSCME, the, right. the, the case where. Um, there, there used to be kind of a First Amendment exception to union uh, organizing that could uh, compel speech, compel, compel uh, union dues because of certain public interest, public policy reasons. And 
And if universities indeed are purely political activist groups and they're liberal and, and, and all the rest, then we do have to perhaps examine the, the legal superstructure surrounding uh, higher ed. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the Janus analogy actually does does resonate at a certain level, but at, at, a, at a bare minimum, you know, I was I, I was happy that a lot of us kind of in media and the Substack universe. I mean, your message got out. Your message got out loud and clear. I felt like Joshua Katz's message ended up getting out loud and clear as well. And kind of a shameless note, I would encourage listeners to check out Paul DeQuinoy's columns for Newsweek on the travails of both Joshua Katz and Ilya Shapiro. I thought Paul did a very good job with those particular columns there. But let, let's take it to a quick break. Again, we're joined here by Ilya Shapiro of the Manhattan Institute. On the other side, we're going to dig into this historic, and I really do say historic, Supreme Court term. So stay with us. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. With that table setting now out of the way, let's kind of dive into the substance here. So this was a historic Supreme Court term by any stretch of the imagination, Ilya. I think you would probably agree with that. I mean, you and I are both, you know, fairly popular Federal Society speakers, both went to University of Chicago Law School. We, we are car-carrying members of the conservative legal movement, and this term really did... Well, uh, well you and I are both frequent FedSoc speakers. I, I'm probably... <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair, point, point well taken. Um, but let me first ask this, uh, rate the, rate this current term one to 10. How would you rate it? <laughs> uh, on, on which, uh, if it's like, you know, landmark will be remembered, uh, than absolute 10. I mean, this is clearly the biggest term, uh, in the last, I don't know, uh, half century, something like that. I mean, wow. so many, so many issues within, within one week, um, and certainly overturning Roe versus Wade, which was the, the animating, um, mission of the conservative legal movement uh, in the last half century uh, as well uh, cannot be uh, overstated. And that's not even to mention you know, people talk about the guns and the school choice and the, and the abortion, but probably in terms of the law uh, and government function, uh, the West Virginia versus EPA case will uh, have uh, the longest uh, legs in terms of pushing back on the administrative state. So there's obviously a lot going on, and I don't think it can be understated. And also what I wrote about for Newsweek uh, this week, the the dynamic where finally, finally, the, the conservatives got the votes that they had, the, the majority that people feared, expected, hoped for uh, coalesced. And I think we'll certainly see more, more of that uh, going forward. I've spoken about the Dobbs case at, on this podcast at Infinitum. So let's let's hold that case aside and focus on some of these other cases. So I'm happy you brought up the school choice aspect of this case out of Maine, Carson versus Macon, because when I've talked about it, I've, I've tended to talk about kind of the religious liberty kind of Blaine Amendment adjacent aspect of this case. Why don't you tell us 
more fully about kind of the full suite of public policy ramifications from this case out of Maine, because it's very interesting. If you look at the groups that were signed on as lawyers in that case, it was my former firm, First Liberty Institute, representing the religious liberty, um, the religious liberty aspect. But Institute for Justice was also counsel on that case for the school choice element of it. So can you just like break it that down a little bit for the listeners and explain how this case had clear ramifications for both religious liberty and the school choice movement? Yeah, what the what the case held was was pretty simple and shouldn't be that controversial. Certainly wasn't radical. And that is uh, you don't have to have a school choice program or any particular kind of program in public policy, for that matter, as a state. But if you do, you can't discriminate against religious institutions, in this case, schools. So Maine's program, it's a very rural state and not all school districts actually have high schools there. And so Maine created a policy where. If uh, for students whose district didn't have a high school, their parents got under a certain formula, the the amount of money they needed to send their kid to a a high school of their choice, except not religious schools. Uh, And uh, the court writing through the chief justice, this was not, uh, you know, a a five to four with Roberts writing on his own. Roberts wrote the majority opinion in in this case, said, uh, no, uh, you can't just because they're religious, you can't exclude them just on that. Uh, on that basis. And so it's it's a very logical you know, next step, uh, as the court said, I, I would even say not even the next step, but identical to the previous cases, Trinity Lutheran uh, and Espinoza, uh, which said uh, similar things in, in different types of programs. But this, I think, removes the last legal or at least federal legal obstacle to school choice programs. Uh, it's all now in the political process and certainly COVID with, with parents being uh, awakened to what's what's going on uh, uh, in their schools. I think school choice has definitely gotten a, a boost in the in the shoulder, to say the least. One of the most uh, animating public policy issues uh, out there and at the state level. Um, and 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 the court said, look, th- th- there's not uh, an establishment clause problem with parents uh, taking advantage of a program that the state creates um, to to uh, use that use that funding for the for the school uh, of their choice. And the combined effect, really, of this case with the Coach Kennedy case out, out of Washington State also has establishment clause implications. You know, in, in the in the Kennedy case, they finally, finally overruled the Lemon Test, which has been the butt of so many dad jokes over the years, of course, you know, about sour lemons. I think you've probably been more disproportionately responsible for those dad jokes that, <laughs> that, that perhaps anyone else in the in the broader legal blogosphere. So talk us through a little bit of the implications of the demise of Lemon and what that entails. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, in that Kennedy opinion, which said that uh, the coach, Coach Kennedy uh, praying, uh, you know, in his private capacity was not government speech. Uh, and uh, Lemon, interesting, in an appointment, in, in, a, in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, didn't say, therefore, we overrule Lemon. Instead, he said Lemon had been long abandoned. Uh, which is a, a correct uh, uh, empirical statement. You know, neither the left nor the right has really employed uh, lemon as an operative standard for for a long time. And so, to uh, to, to complete the dad joke about it, the the juice had long ago been squeezed out of the lemon, and now <laughs> the court discarded. There he the is. Line. There he is. <laughs> um, uh, but what this means is that religion doesn't have to absent itself from the public square. It's not an establishment clause violation to have an appearance of religion in whether it's schools or other other public uh, spaces, as long as there's not what coercion or discrimination against those who refuse to adopt some religious tenet. Um, 
I, I think it's it gives that wiggle room that you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about um, between the free exercise and the establishment clause. So uh, I think this gives more room in the public square for religious expression, for religious exercise, as long as, again, it's not the government that's pushing um, uh, any particular uh, type of, of religion or, or no religion for that matter. Right. So the basic crux, to, you know, for the non-lawyers in the audience here, and, and this is why I think the combined reading of these two cases, with particularly perhaps the Kennedy case, is, is so important. I was trying to emphasize this on the recent solo podcast that I did on, on the Supreme Court, is in the past, really, what, what, what I think what Ilya is saying is that progressives have oftentimes read the establishment clause of the First Amendment in a way that impinges upon the free exercise rights of religious communities here. And what Justice Gorsuch is saying very, very clearly in the Kennedy opinion is that this is an improper reading. So if I can be pedantic, so here's how the First Amendment begins. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that's the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. But the idea here is that these two clauses must be read in tandem with one another. They are not to be read as being at loggerheads or intention. So it's a really, really, really nice victory for religious liberty. The demise of Lemon is long overdue. And really, in any other term, I think this would have been this, this would have been a marquee case. This would have been a headline case. But, you know, the fact that it's getting so overshadowed by the abortion ruling, the guns ruling just shows how prolific this term was. But Ilya, you also mentioned West Virginia versus EPA, which is a big is a very big case unto itself. And I, I did not have a ton of time on my recent podcast that I did to kind of fully get into the weeds there. So this is probably the court's clearest pronunciation of what I guess they are now calling the so-called major questions doctrine. So for those less steeped in administrative law nerdery, can you kind of help break down what the so-called major questions doctrine as the court is describing it is and what that actually means as far as the administrative state? Yes. And and all of these cases that we're describing, by the way, are, are the ultimate vindication of Justice Scalia. You know, he had that famous line 30 years ago. Elephants about, and mouse holes, right? Uh, elephants and mouse holes in administrative law or the, the zombified uh, lemon stalking the, right. the landscape, uh, 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 instilling fear in little children. Um, you know, the, the gun case, you know, building on his Heller opinion. But but anyway, so I, so I think that this um, uh, is is a big Scalia term in 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 his uh, in his absence. Uh, but okay, the administrative law case. So this is about um, the EPA uh, promulgating the Clean Power Plan, which started under President Obama. And in fact, the last official act by Justice Scalia before he passed uh, was to join uh, a stay of the Clean Power Plan, not not in an argued case, but there was an emergency appeal to, to stay it uh, pending further uh, lower court litigation that ended up uh, this many years later as as this case. Um, and uh, the issue is uh, the, the 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 administration, first Obama and now Biden, uh, have used uh, various provisions of the Clean uh, Air Act to promulgate a different kind of regulatory scheme on uh, individual factories um, in terms of their emission of, of, of gases that affect climate change. Uh, and the question was whether they had that authority. Um, and the court said no here, again, a six to three uh, decision. Um, because this is a major question, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, uh, or as the court defined a major question, something with significant economic or societal impact. And Congress did not speak clearly to it. 
you know, if it's another issue of Congress that said, and therefore we're giving the power to the EPA to do X, Y, Z, and then the, then the EPA does X, Y, Z, and we can further litigate whether Congress can delegate that authority. That's a different doctrine than non-delegation doctrine. But the major questions doctrine says the EPA cannot simply take that upon themselves. Um, uh, Congress has to has to give it that kind of awesome uh, authority. Um, interestingly, Justice Gorsuch uh, wrote a concurring opinion uh, talking about you know how lower courts should look at what constitutes a major question, and he was joined by Justice Alito, and that's important because in a case several years ago called Gundy, Gundy that's right, yep, involving that non-delegation doctrine, the issue of whether Congress is improperly delegating the legislative power to a different branch or for that matter to someone else. You know, there's certain that the theory is the legislative power the constitution gives to Congress. Congress can't give it away. The executive branch is supposed to execute and enforce, maybe fill in the gaps, but not create new laws. And so in the Gundy case, Alito joined the majority that 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 declined to apply the non-delegation doctrine in a in a criminal law circumstance. Uh, Gorsuch uh, led the vanguard, led the charge in dissent. But here they are in this case uh, in full agreement, uh, as were their their other uh, colleagues in the in the six to another six to three uh, majority, uh, saying that uh, the administrative state can't take it upon themselves. And this is you know beyond applies beyond uh, climate change, beyond the EPA. Uh, if it's something major, if it's a you know huge piece of, of of regulation that that affects a lot of money or you know some societal understandings, then that has to come directly from Congress. And I think that's a very healthy thing uh, in our jurisprudence, in our politics, because part of the dysfunction that we see is that Congress just punts uh, uh, tough decisions rather than being the place where we're supposed to hash out our national policy differences punts those things into the executive branch, which, which then gets sued. Uh, and so, you know, uh, aggrandizing the Supreme Court uh, in the process. So I thought I think this was a, a brave and long overdue maneuver by the Supreme Court to push to force Congress to actually legislate if it wants the administrative state to do big things. So the so-called non-delegation doctrine, textually speaking, just derives from Article One, Section One, Clause One, the very the very first post preamble sentence of the Constitution, which reads, "Quote: All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States." So, put in other words, uh, Congress has to make laws. Congress has to legislate it according to a plain kind of textual reading. There, they cannot delegate it to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats in Article Two, deep in the deep state. It's worth noting that. It's textually straightforward. The actual founding era history is debated. So Phil Hamburger has made, I, I find a pretty persuasive case on on behalf of the illegitimacy of the Ministry of State, but it is it is worth noting that that there is history on both sides here. Uh, Adrian Vermeule and Eric Posner, I think, have written quite prolifically taken the other side of that question. But uh, Ilya, one question to you would be, is well, it, just before just before sure, we get on sure. that, what, another, I, th- I, th- I thought where you were going with this was, uh, the non-delegation doctrine has that textual basis. The major questions doctrine doesn't really. It's sort of a, a more That's modern. True, yeah. It's a modern innovation that the court has has put in as a response to the uh, you know decades old non-enforcement of the non-delegation doctrine. And in that Gundy case, in Gorsuch's dissent, 
Justice Gorsuch uh, talks about hydraulic forces that if certain provisions of the Constitution have not been enforced, other ones uh, arise to do the same work. So it's kind of a second best uh, option. But in effect, the major questions doctrine is doing a lot of the work that the non-delegation doctrine might otherwise. Okay, so so, so that's actually exactly what I was going to ask you. So with with all this you know, this this major questions doctrine, which may or may not be legitimate as kind of a tool of statutory interpretation, th- this would basically get thrown out the window, right? If they actually reclaim the non-delegation doctrine as a as a thing to be dealt with again, right? Well, that would be the that would be the next thing. If Congress actually tried to impose the clean power plan uh, and there's a challenge saying that, uh, um, you know, it, it can't Congress can't unless it gets very specific about exactly, you know, how many what kind of emissions and how much uh, each factory can do, which they wouldn't. They would leave that to the uh, to the EPA. You know, is that too much of a delegation of, of, of legislative power? And th- then that would get interesting. My personal feeling is that if uh, the non-delegation doctrine is ever litigated at the Supreme Court again, and it might not for a while, because, as I said, of these hydraulic pressures that force these other things, similar to how. The Chevron uh, deference, which we need not right. get into, but as we continue our, you know, administrative law nerdery, the amount of deference that judges give to, uh, to, to bureaucrats who are interpreting their own powers, uh, the court did not get into Chevron deference because of the major questions doctrine. But it all gets to the same point of pushing back on the administrative state and forcing it to stay within actual legislative uh, 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 limits rather than going off on frolic and detours. And I think this is the ultimate vindication, not just of Justice Scalia, but even more of Don McGahn, uh, Donald Trump's White House counsel, who was the architect of his judicial selections, because that was, I think, the the animating factor more than anything else, more than pushing back on Roe or or, or whatever. And, and you, among others, have have criticized Don McGahn for, for being so focused on the administrative state rather than some of these other social issues. But I think that's uh, partly what's going on here. Yeah, I have. And for what it's worth, I, I stand by the crux of those criticisms, certainly. I, I do, in, in the grand scheme of things, view kind of the administrative state as as a secondary, arguably even tertiary concern relative to some of, the, of these of, of these other issues. But I, I do consider West Virginia versus EPA to be a fairly major victory nonetheless. But, but, but before we let you go, Ilya, I do want to come back to, I, again, we're going to hold aside the Dobbs case just because I've, I've talked so much about this and so other so many other podcasts over the past couple of weeks. But I, I, I do want to talk about the gun case just a little bit here. So we described in a previous podcast what happened in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Specifically, I'd be curious if you agree with my assessment that this is probably Justice Thomas's most uh, certainly most headline grabbing, arguably, arguably most career defining ma- majority Absolutely. opinion to date. He yeah. hasn't gotten the opportunity to write that many uh, uh, notable uh, majority opinions. He writes a lot. He writes more than anyone else. Uh, you know, he's been on the court 30 years and you, you total up his you know dissents, concurrences and in majorities, and he, he writes more, more, more opinions and more pages uh, for those. You know, Scotus blog. You can find these these statistics there than, than anyone else. And uh, but because of just the way the seniority work has worked out, and and you know where he is in the overall ideological composition of the court, he hasn't had the the opportunity. But this one, being the senior most associate justice when the chief is not along for the ride, has given him a lot of power. In fact, you know this. So this this case he took for himself because Roberts uh, uh, didn't go as far as the majority opinion did. And the Dobbs case, you know, he was the one who assigned that to, to Justice Alito. So this this year as a whole, I think, uh, is really you see 
uh, Justice Thomas uh, coming into his own. And even though typically a court is named after either the chief justice or the median vote, and the median vote for the last few years has been uh, Brett Kavanaugh, but I think really this is more the Thomas court than anything else at this point. I would agree with that. Yeah, I was on Jenna Ellis's podcast very recently, and she asked me whether I would describe it as the Roberts court or the Thomas court. And I I, I agree with you. I, I said that this is this is the Thomas court, and that in and of itself is just a really remarkable achievement. But Ilya, you know, you and I could talk all day. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but where can the listeners find you? Yeah, if you go to the Manhattan Institute website, I'll, I'm there listed under under experts. If you go to Substack and 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 look up my name, Shapiro's gavel uh, is right there. The name of my book is Supreme Disorder. So lots of places. If you just Google my name, you'll probably see still mostly uh, headlines about the, the denouement of my Georgetown saga. <laughs> but uh, but in any event, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be back in the arena. And, and I, you know, the Substack seems to be a wonderful platform for interacting uh, with readers, although I only allow comments for for those who get paid subscriptions. All right. Well, Eli Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Josh. And I, I, I love uh, the the vibrant nature of the debate at Newsweek as well. Uh, great to, to resurrect that brand uh, and the function that it plays in public affairs. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I want to quickly go back to the foreign policy area, though, that we started off this podcast on. Just horrific, horrific news this past week. Really feels kind of surreal, to be honest with you. Um, Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe assassinated, literally assassinated while giving a campaign speech. He's the longest serving prime minister in modern post-World War II Japanese history. He was a very close ally of former President Trump's. He was actually the first foreign leader to visit Donald Trump in the White House after he became president. Pretty remarkable in of itself. Um, you know, we spoke about Israel in the beginning of this podcast. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is certainly a fan of Shinzo Abe. He, he, he generally was a more conservative, kind of nationalist, national sovereignty kind of figure. He was very skeptical of folks like Angela Merkel, who kind of stood for this EU, NATO, kind of globalist transnationalism. He he very much was an ally for the kind of for the, basically for the kind of conservatism, for the kind of right wing politics that we on this podcast subscribe to. So just a truly horrific event. I, at the time that we're recording this, details are extremely thin. The lunatic whose name we will not say who uh, assassination Zoabe did not put him much of a fight. He said that he objected to his policies and that he wanted him dead. Look, I mean, if it really is that simple and we could chalk it up to him just being an absolute lunatic, the thing that I'm going to be closely following over these next few weeks, I, I am not going to let this story go. I'm actually quite rattled by this story. I've been to Japan numerous times. I'm actually a bit of a Japanophile, to be honest with you. I, I, I am really going to be trying to pay close attention and digging under the hood a little bit to see what, if any, Chinese involvement was involved here. Because Shinzo Abe was reviled by Beijing. He was 
hated by Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party Politburo in general, because, again, he was a nationalist figure who wanted a strong Japan, who I think ideally wanted a more militarized Japan, which obviously in the aftermath of what happened in World War II has been a very demilitarized country. So I don't know. I mean, at this point, it's just open speculation. We don't have any more information, unfortunately, but I really hope we see some attention, some investigative journalist attention. But until next time, this is The Josh Hammer Show. We'll be joined next week by Carol Markowitz. See you then. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.